0: Father in heaven, seems that this loving thing is going to be a little difficult. So we pray Your grace today as we seek to commit ourselves to Your great purpose for Your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So the video sets the bar pretty high, doesn't it? And as it's going along, it's all familiar. You've heard that before, right? It's 1 Corinthians 13. You've been reading that all week. You'll be reading it for days to come now, and it all… it all seems good, and, and then He turns around at the end, right? And the, the love, Thy neighbor on the front all seems understandable enough until… until we're reminded of just who our neighbors are, Then it gets a little uncomfortable. Are we ready for advanced loving at that level? Maybe there's some things we still need to sort out in our minds, like, like the difference between genuinely loving versus somehow if I love, am I condoning something I don't agree with? Do I need to? How do I? What am I? We don't know, do we? Can we, as Jesus says, love our enemies and pray for those who despitefully use us? That's another level, isn't it? Say what you will about President Trump, and for the record, many of you have. I saw your posts. (laughs) Say what you will about President Trump. I will assure you of this regarding him. He sure is making it tricky for me and the rest of the staff to pastor this church. And it is all particularly tricky when we have dived headlong into a series on love with the commitment that we're going to practice a certain saying each time we walk through those doors. You remember what it is? When we come through those doors, we're going to say, these are the people I love. And we're not going to close our eyes when we do that. And that might be easier For those of you in the room who aren't on Facebook, to be able to come in and say, these are the ones I love, because many of you have seen quite clearly what the ones you love say outside the room when they're not in it. But to look around and honestly be able to say, these are the people I love. You know, I had hoped that would be it would be a bit easier for us to be able to do that than it looks like it's going to be. It looks like we're going to have to do this in reality, not just in pretend. What do you think? Are we actually up to the challenge of being a people who love one another in the current climate of strife in America? We've talked about this before, and I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to say it with love. We've all got to let go of the notion that everyone in this church is ever going to agree. It's just not going to happen. Even on things that I might think are crystal clear and critically important. We could hypothetically be an agreeing church, a church full of people who all see things in the same light. But to get there, probably half of us would need to leave. But which half? And who gets to choose? Now there are probably churches in the area that are far more homogeneous in outlook than we are, but is that really what we want? To just be surrounded by people who look like we look, whoever we is, or think like we think, or vote like we vote? Is that love? We just surround ourselves with ourselves? Luke 6, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. What if the ones Jesus is challenging us to love aren't just out there What if some of them are in here? And what if Jesus is serious when he says, Luke 6:36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful? Shouldn't it be enough to just be right? Do I have to be merciful even when I'm right and you're wrong? Is there another time for being merciful? Remind me. Shouldn't I be able to win just because my cause is righteous? And shouldn't my great knowledge of truth be the final word? First Corinthians 13, verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love. I am nothing. Can you look around you, even after this latest week of crazy, and say, these are the people I love, knowing full well in your heart these people don't all see reality the same way you do? Well, maybe you can reflect on that for a minute, and I will tell you that we're not the first ones to be a church community to have this problem of not everyone seeing things the same way. It seems they had a similar problem in the city of Corinth. And in order for us to understand better how this problem came to be, we need to go back and look at the history of how the church in Corinth began. So I want to take us back to Acts chapter 18 for this. And so let's reflect on this for a minute. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks." Now something I want you to notice as I'm reading all of this is that the Bible doesn't leave out the fact that people come from certain races and people come from certain perspectives. Because we have Paul, who's traveling and teaching about Jesus, meeting uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who've been thrown out of Rome. Why? Because they're Jewish. And they've come to Corinth because apparently Corinth isn't so careful. And they're living in Corinth, and he connects with them there, and Paul is trying to teach the Jews, but is he just trying to teach the Jews? No, he's also trying to teach the Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Now I want to take you back to a map that we looked at last fall because we talked about this context before, and I want to remind you what's going on here because geography matters to this story. So Paul is on his second missionary journey, and this is the journey where he's traveling along and and it says… Paul was kept by the Holy Spirit from going into the province of Asia. Do you remember that story? That's the yellow part of the map there. That's Asia. And so the line, instead of going where it makes sense to go, where all the cities are, he goes way out of his way up around to the north. And it's not till he gets to Troas that he has the dream of the man from Macedonia saying, come over and teach us. So Paul then obeys the dream, goes across, he goes to Philippi, and he goes to Thessalonica, and he goes to Berea, and he's spending time there, and he's having great success. That's up at the top on the left. But then oppression comes. So they put Paul on a ship, and he goes down to Athens. And after a little time in Athens, then he travels over to Corinth. And that's where we pick up this story, because Paul and Silas and Timothy stayed until he got to Corinth and then they came and joined him. So verse 6, but when they opposed Paul, he's trying to teach the Jews about Jesus the Messiah, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Do you have any idea how offensive that was? You don't because we're Gentiles, we don't get it. Verse 7, Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So now, we've got this group of believers forming, some of them are Jews, some of them are Greeks. Now verse 9 is very interesting. Notice this verse. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. All right, let me ask you a question. Does the Lord ever come to you and say, do not be afraid when everything's going smoothly and you have no worries? No. So obviously there's trouble. Does the Lord ever say to you, keep speaking and don't be silent when no one is trying to make you be quiet? No. So, obviously, there's oppression here, too. Verse 10, God says, for I am with you, well, that's not surprising, He promised that. And no one is going to attack and harm you, why? Because I have many people in this city. And we're going to talk about that some next week, how remarkable a phrase that is to find in this story in Corinth, but we'll come back to that next week. For now, we've got to go on. Verse 11, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the Word of God. That's unusual. Paul didn't usually stay anywhere that long. There's an interesting story in the next verses, but I won't read it to you here. We'll go down to verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So now Paul's moving on again. The time is up. And now he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him and Paul is headed for Syria. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Now he will come back on his third journey and he will spend time there. But he left Priscilla and Aquila there. Verse 22, when Paul landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay, so Paul has gone on his way. Priscilla and Aquila are left behind. What I'm telling you here is how the trouble started in Corinth. You may not see that yet, but you're going to in a minute. So Priscilla and Aquila are left behind in Ephesus. Paul is off doing other things. Now, verse 24, you'll remember this story from last fall as well. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only what? The baptism of John. We talked about this last fall. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Do you think it was just by chance that Paul left these two behind, or did God have a divine appointment for Apollos in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila who were in Corinth but used to be in Rome? Can God do what He needs to do? Can He get us where we need to go? Verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. Now I want to explain to you what's happening here. So over here in the yellow is Ephesus. That's where that arrow comes across the sea there. That's Ephesus. That's where Apollos finds Priscilla and Aquila, but now he wants to go to Achaia That's the region where Corinth is. So I want you to understand that. So Paul goes from Corinth to Ephesus. Apollos goes from Ephesus to Corinth. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, because what did Apollos do? For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So God is doing a work in Corinth. He sends Paul there. He stays a year-and-a-half. A group of believers forms, but then Paul has to go, but then oppression comes on to those believers. So Apollos shows up, gets instructed in the right way to go, travels to Corinth, and begins to refute those who are tearing the church apart from the outside. And Apollos is a great help. But now a problem happens. You see, Paul has laid a foundation of faith. And Apollos has come and built on it. Both are specially gifted, both essential at the right time. But here's the thing. Paul and Apollos are not the same guys. They have different style. They have different approach. They even have different culture. Remember Apollos, that's a Greek name, right? Now, he's Jewish, but if his mama named him Apollos, she didn't raise him as a proper Jew, did she? Paul is a Benjamite who used to be a Pharisee, and they both come to the same place, and it's likely that they said and did things differently and taught a little differently, and herein comes the problem. Over time, Paul and Apollos became the basis of contention in the church in Corinth. We find out about this in the letter Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be His holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he starts in, I always thank my God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. Now, note verse 5, very important. For in Him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. So here's the question to put in your mind. Is it enough to just be enriched with all speech and all knowledge? Or do you need something more? Verse 6, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Now, verse 7, therefore, and we're going to look at verse 7 next week. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So this is a blessed church. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So far, so good, right? Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you." Uh Uh-oh. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another I follow Apollos. Another I follow Cephas, that's Peter. Still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. And beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else, but you get my point, right? You ever do that in an argument, you're making a real good case, and then you remember it's not that good a case. But nonetheless, (laughs) my point holds. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. All right. So you had different teachers, and you had different groups who believed they were right. And dissension arose in the church because they couldn't agree with each other. There were different groups with different knowledge. But knowledge alone was not enough to unite the people. Being sure you are right and purging those who are wrong sometimes seems like the road to peace, doesn't it? We just get rid of everybody that disagrees with me, we'll be fine. Okay, if we got rid of everyone that disagrees with you, you would be alone. <laughs> right? <laughs> Knowledge is never enough to unite. Only love, as revealed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus can bring peace and joy and harmony to a community of believers. And if you always have to win, then the church will always have to lose. So this attitude that gets going in Corinth. begins to break down even some of the most important things. Now I I want to read you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 every time we have communion, every time we have the Lord's Supper, and we read beautiful words. But now I'm going to read you the words that come right before the beautiful words, and we don't think about these. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 17, and the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. That's a little harsh, right? In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. And that is the setup for the words you know. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Those words don't show up in the midst of Paul saying nice things to do. They show up as a rebuke because the people are coming together and allowing divisions to exist between them. God forbid that we ever share the cup of communion in this place and yet hold strife in our hearts against each other. That's what they were doing in Corinth. To do so would make us, and I want to borrow the language from the book of Jude, beginning in verse 11, woe to them, those who would come with division. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain." That's where we stole the language for today blown along by the wind, autumn trees, without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. That sounds horrible, right? Now, I have to confess to you, I have taken that Jude passage a little out of the context that that Jude is writing about, but I believe those words apply in the case we're talking about. And that is... When we've got all the knowledge and all the prophecy and all the understanding, or at least we think we do, and we have no love in our hearts, we're like something that looks like it would be refreshing, a cloud to bring rain, but somehow the rain never happens. So I want you to look around you. You did this last week. So go ahead, do it again. Look around. I know you're not doing it yet because your heads aren't moving. Go ahead. Look around. Are these the people you love? Well, here's the thing. I suppose that's entirely up to you because here's the deal. Some of the people you see when you look around the room deserve your love because they treat you so good. And I hope some of them are even sitting near you right now. That would be great. But some of the other people you see when you look around this room have not treated you so good. And which of us isn't suspicious of people we don't know, right? And in a room this size with this many people, there's a lot of people here you don't know. Not to mention there's a second service and a first service of a whole nother set. So what about the people as you look around you right now, what about the people that are just plain wrong? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, what am I? Nothing. Nothing. All right. So as we wrap up here, I just want to take a second and remind us of a couple things we all know, but as we live our lives, sometimes forget. We're going to talk about purpose here, all right? I'm going to start with two things that are not our primary purpose. Are you ready? Here we go. Hopefully I'll offend everybody before we're done. (laughs) The primary purpose of the Forest Lake Church is not to make America great again, to coin a phrase. Now, I wouldn't care if America was great. That would be wonderful. I want to live in a great country. It's better that way. But God didn't place us here for that. However, we still have a responsibility to pray for our leaders. Because Paul said, pray for the leaders when the leaders were cruel Romans who threw Jews out of Rome. So I think maybe we should take the point and pray for our leaders even when they do things we don't like. Okay, that's the first. Second, the primary purpose of the Forest Lake Church is not to be a place that just foments dissension and revolt with all the painful consequences that strife can bring. We're not just here to get together and talk about how awful it is. However, we must always default to a bias in favor of widows and orphans and strangers and aliens. Why? Because I want to? No, I don't really want to. I kind of like the world the way I like it. And strangers change my world. And I don't like that. But here's the reason. Because both the Old Testament and the New Testament requires that we do that. The Old Testament says, because you were once strangers in another land, you must welcome the stranger and alien. And the New Testament says, you Gentiles, that's like the only term we all apply to, were once foreigners and aliens to the covenants of God. But in Christ, you who were far away have been brought near. So we're not just here to make America great again. We're not just here to start a revolution. Here's what we are here for. We are here to build the kingdom of God. That's what we're here for. And that happens when each of us alone and together lives the gospel in everything we do. And step one to achieving this goal we must love one another. John thirteen thirty four. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If we cannot love one another, then we will be nothing more than clouds without rain. If we can't demonstrate in an America that tears itself apart that people of every nation and kindred and tongue can come together and be united by something deeper, the love of God as shown by Jesus Christ through His life, death, and resurrection. If we can't demonstrate that in this time, then we're in a pretty impressive cloud. But we've got no ring. And so this is why I've given you two tasks for the next two months. Task number one, read 1 Corinthians 13 every day. How'd you do? How'd you do this last week? I did terrible. (laughs) I had pastor's meetings. I was all off schedule. I didn't have my, my regular morning routines. It was horrible. So I have to repent and do better. I hope you did well, because if you did, you're already starting to be transformed by these words. And I want to encourage you, pick it up and do it. 1 Corinthians 13 every day. That's the first task. Task number two, practice saying whenever you come into this place, these are the people I love. All right, let's say it together so we can do it. These are the people I love. One day you're actually going to start believing that. Remember, love one another isn't just a suggestion that Jesus makes. John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. These are the people I love. Can you say it and actually be telling the truth even when you know some of them are in here? And we all have a sum of them, don't we? The command of Jesus isn't to love those who agree with you. The command is to even love your enemies. So i got to admit, this love thing isn't going to be very easy. We were all pretty much on board with this idea last week. Are we still on board? Can we agree? No matter what the world does outside of here, regardless of whether we even agree on what happened, because you know that's where we're at right now, we don't even agree on reality anymore, except for the reality of Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again. No matter what the world does outside of here, regardless of whether we can agree on what happened, the command of Jesus is that we must still love one another. So that's the challenge. We can do it if we're willing to try. Let's pray. Father in heaven, send Your Holy Spirit, send Your grace. Send us help from Your tabernacle. Because we don't want to just tolerate one another. We want to love one another. We don't want to be a cloud without rain. We don't want to have all knowledge and understand all the prophecies and have amazing faith, but still be nothing because we have no love. Lord, if we get nothing else right this year, help us get love right. Help us to love one another. In Jesus' name. Amen.